Now, <laughs> I'm going to start this morning and uh, I'm going to show my age a little bit, which I'm not afraid to do. Um, anybody remember the TV game show, Let's Make a Deal? Monty Hall, right? If you're not familiar with it, it was really one of those crazy 70s, almost a laugh-in type thing. And again, I'm showing my age with laugh-in too, but it was just, just wacky. And like people, Monty Hall would walk into the audience and he'd say, the next contestant is anybody that has on their person a buffalo nickel. And like somebody would raise their hand, I got a bone. So he'd walk up and they got a buffalo nickel. So like you're the next contestant. And they go up and, and what it is, you got three doors. And, and the main prize, the good prize, is behind one of those doors. Behind another of the doors is just a silly joke, something stupid that, you know, you're like, oh, great, I got that. And then a lot of times the other door was a lifetime supply of rice Anybody remember that? So you got three doors so you could get like a, a, a bad joke, a, a, a clown holding a rubber chicken or something with stupid stuff going on around them. A lifetime supply of rice or a really good prize. And again, that might be different now than it was then. But you got one or the other, and all you had to do was pick a door. You didn't know what was behind what, so it was kind of a game of chance, and you had a one in three chance of getting something good, a two in three chance of getting either rice or a rubber chicken or something like that. If you haven't seen it, YouTube, but I'm sure it's out there somewhere on the internet, look up uh, Let's Make a Deal or Monty Hall. It's actually a lot of fun, so you could enjoy that. Now, why in the world am I talking about that? Well, this morning, as we start into Matthew 26, hard to believe that we've made it all the way to Matthew 26 in our study of Matthew. Matthew 1 seems like a long, long, long time ago, and I guess it was. But what we're going to read this morning, we're going to see three responses to Jesus. Specifically, Jesus talking about his crucifixion. Specifically, Jesus here at the end of his life. We're, we've been on Wednesday of the last week of Jesus' life for a few months now. It's been the longest Wednesday ever. Um, and we find ourselves there again today. <clears throat> and we're going to see three different responses to the person and work of Christ. And hopefully, we're going to find ourselves opening the right door as far as what our response is to him. And we don't get a lifetime supply of rice or or a cruel joke that's not really that funny anyway. So if you would please stand. We stand as we read the scriptures because we reverence and honor the God who inspired these scriptures and who reveals himself through these scriptures. We do believe these are the very words of God. So we stand out of reverence. And we're going to read Matthew 26. Verses 1 through 16. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the place of the high priest, palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, said, but Jesus aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, 
Wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your powerful word. And God, I pray that you would separate us this morning with this word. Pierce us. Divide our hearts, our souls, our spirits, so that we might be laid bare before you. And God, help us to know which person we are this morning so that we can respond to you in a way that brings us to you and doesn't push us away from you. Holy Spirit, convict us. Holy Spirit, give life to the dead this morning and shape us and make us more like Jesus as we leave this place today. And we ask it in His name. Amen. You may be seated. Yeah, uh, we joked and laughed for a long time about Matthew 24 and 25, and it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. It seems like it's been here a long time. But today we find ourselves out of chapter 25 and starting in uh, 26. And let's start here with these first two verses. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So... Jesus had finished all these sayings. Those sayings that's being referred to there is the Olivet Discourse, in which, in chapters 24 and 25, Jesus had answered the disciples' question or questions about the destruction of the temple, the signs of His coming and power and full glory, and the end of the age. And we spent a lot of time in chapter 24, and maybe a little less in 25, just the way it divided out, parsing out what He said there. So today... We find ourselves, like I said, still on Wednesday of the last week of Jesus' life and ministry. And the cross is looming larger and larger with every second that ticks by. So the passage today says when Jesus had finished all these sayings, this Olivet Discourse, and after having finished them, Jesus announces something that is much closer than the destruction of the temple or the culmination of his kingdom. As a matter of fact, he speaks of just a couple of days away. You know, he says, assuming that his disciples do know this, that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now, in our journey through Matthew, we've seen him say this a few times. And this is the fourth time, if I'm counting right, that Jesus is announcing that He is going to be taken, crucified, and other places He also said resurrected on the third day. And each time that He's announced this, it seems like it got a little bit more detailed, more and more specific. So here, now, Jesus calls His shot pretty clearly. Passover is two days away, He says, and I, the Son of Man, will be delivered up to be crucified. Here he discloses that he will be killed by crucifixion on the high holy day of Passover, the biggest day of the Jewish religious year, which was only two days away. So that sets us on Wednesday because Passover would have started at sundown on Friday. Now what we call Good Friday, Jesus predicts before it happens, will see the Son of Man, Jesus, hung on a Roman cross. And we don't have recorded here how the disciples processed this. 
what they thought about it, how they felt, what they said about it. But you just get the feeling that when your rabbi says that he's two days away from crucifixion, it's probably a pretty somber deal, right? And we'll focus more on them in the next message, next week, Lord willing, on Resurrection Sunday. But for now, Matthew, under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit, turns our focus away from the disciples and to another group of people who at this same time are planning some things of their own. Verses 3 and 4. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Okay, so we've got some stuff to dig into here. And let's dig in pretty deep. Now we see some old familiar foes of the person and work of Jesus here. The chief priests, the elders of the people, and the high priest. Now we've seen these guys referenced along with references to the scribes and Pharisees uh, time and time and time again. And it's always in antithesis to something that Jesus is saying or doing or to Jesus himself. They are the bad guys, just to put it bluntly. Okay? And we've seen them all through Matthew playing that role of bad guy, contesting with Jesus, arguing with Jesus, accusing Jesus, plotting against Jesus, and continuing to do so up until even here. The chief priests were the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was the leading decision makers and settlers of Jewish law for the people made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. The elders of the people mentioned here were not specifically religious but were the leading decision makers of the people in a general sense. They were the elders. Like you see elders all through the Old Testament, uh, the different tribes appointing elders for their tribe to be decision makers, to be leaders. These are the leaders of the people, the the elders of the Jewish people. So they were basically day-to-day leaders, making decisions for day-to-day life, not necessarily religious life. Um, And we see that all through the Old Testament. And then there's the high priest. A guy named Caiaphas. Let me just say it as plainly as I can. This guy Caiaphas, he's not a nice guy. Okay, He is the high priest, which means he holds the highest, holiest position in Jewish life. But he's not a nice guy. Okay, John MacArthur points out that every time Caiaphas is mentioned in the Gospels, it's in connection with working to have Jesus killed if that's any indication of what kind of guy this was, okay? Caiaphas's father-in-law was a guy named Annas. And Annas had been chief priest before Caiaphas. And Caiaphas married Annas's daughter to stake a claim on the chief priesthood. Technically, Caiaphas had no connection, no family blood that would have put him in the place where he could be high priest because you had to be Levitical. You had to be from the tribe of Levi to be a high priest. Well, Caiaphas was not from the tribe of Levi, but he married Annas' daughter, which put him in Annas' family, which put him in position where he could be appointed to be high priest. So he snookered his way into that. So that kind of tells you what he's like. Also, and MacArthur points this out, I don't know the validity of this, but I just... I want to paint this guy as badly as I can, okay? So they say that most of the time, Jewish women were married between 12 years old and 12 and a half years old. So for Caiaphas to marry Annas' daughter, he probably married a 12-year-old. So there you go. We'll just leave that right there. Just put a pin in that and leave it there. This guy is a snake, okay? His in-lawness, 
and connection with Annas gave him connection to the high priesthood. And, interestingly enough, it gave Annas an inroad to continue to operate the businesses of the temple. Those things that Jesus had come in and cleansed earlier in the week, flipped over the tables of the money changers and the sellers of goods. Guess who was overseeing all that? Caiaphas's father-in-law, the former chief priest, Annas. So these guys are working in concert with each other. A lot of people say that Caiaphas was really just a puppet of Annas, which he didn't care because he had a lot of power, he had a lot of wealth, and he had gotten into the place of highest religious privilege. So there's a lot of bad stuff going on here. So regardless, know that Caiaphas, whom we meet here in his palace, and note that word, in his palace, it was a palace, this Caiaphas was only interested in one thing, getting rid of this persnickety, no-named rabbi from nowhere, especially since Jesus had run out the money changers and sellers of good in Annas' temple, and I'm sure they would have considered it Annas' temple, even though they would have called it the temple of God. So all these folks together, the chief priests, the elders, the high priests, they gather, it would seem, on this Wednesday evening slash night to plot together, putting their minds and evil intentions into one big pot in order, Matthew says, to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill Him. And again, note that whole feel here. It feels they're plotting together to find a sneaky way to arrest Jesus, which they could do as the decision makers of the people so that they could kill Him. They finally had enough. They've been plotting for a long time, and we saw it back as early as Matthew 12. So this is not new, but it is plainly more pressing here. They've been making plans for a while, but now is the time to make the plan to get the thing done. Now, well, not quite now, verse 5. But, they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So they do want to arrest and kill Jesus, but they say... Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, we've said a few times before, and if you don't know this, Jerusalem at the time of Passover swelled in population because every Jewish person had to come to the temple. Okay, the temple in Jerusalem to offer their lamb for Passover. So think about every Jewish person that could possibly come, coming into town around this time, Some people say as many as two plus million people converged on the holy city for the high holy observance of the feast of Passover. And God had prescribed that all who were able should come to the appointed place of worship to commemorate the Passover, which was a celebration of, a remembrance of, God having killed the firstborn of the Egyptians back in Exodus. Remember all this? And he had passed over the firstborn of the Hebrews as long as they had slain a lamb and spread its blood on their doorposts. When I see the blood, God had said, I shall pass over that house and spare those people. That's way back in the book of Exodus. So Passover, we're talking about Resurrection Sunday being our big day, our our biggest celebration. Passover was the big deal in Jewish religious life. And we'll delve into that much more next week, hopefully. Lord willing. But here... The plotters, these guys that are plotting Jesus' death, understand that if they try to arrest and kill Jesus right now, with all these millions of people in the city, there just might be an uproar. You may remember that Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem back on Palm Sunday, what we're celebrating today, 
We're not really celebrating because we're not really doing anything about it. <clears throat> but on the Sunday before his coming into town, as he came in town, he's riding on the back of the foal of a donkey. And what are these millions of people yelling, screaming, hollering, singing as he comes into town? Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Hosanna means come now. Be with us now. Deliver us now. And so that confession is their way of saying, we believe that this may be our Messiah. Even though they didn't really fully understand the full extent of that, which we talked about in that message on, on that passage. So these guys are saying, eh, we, want, we might just cause a problem if we take him and kill him now. So, not during the feast. But wait just a second. Remember what Jesus said back in verse 2? Let me get there. You know that after two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man, if we're not careful, just might happen to be killed. No. You know that after two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now don't miss that. God in the flesh knew the plan, which had been forged in eternity past. And that plan was for Jesus to become a man, the Son of God to become a man, be born of a virgin, live a perfect life, and then to be crucified, not just at any old by chance time, but rather the plan from eternity past was that Jesus Christ would be crucified on the Passover. God had been preparing His people for this way back in the second book of the Bible in Exodus when He instituted the Passover that specific night back in Egypt. And that event of, of God passing over the firstborn of the Hebrews and taking the firstborn of the Egyptians, that event was formative for the nation of Israel. But even more pronounced in the plan, calendar, and economy of God. As those Hebrews back in Exodus slaughtered those first lambs, all eternity was reverberating with meaning and forethought. And that's important because these Jewish leaders back in the passage we just read, and five, sorry, are saying, we're not going to do it during the feast. The heck you're not. You're going to do it during the feast whether you know it or not. Whether you plan to or not. Because God had planned it from before eternity. I'm guessing before eternity passed. Back in eternity past, God had planned that Jesus Christ was going to be crucified on the day of Passover. And that's important because these Jewish leaders who should have been using their places of influence and prominence to announce the arrival of the Messiah in conjunction with the Passover, instead they're trying to make sure they don't kill this annoying man during the Passover because that would be inconvenient for them. But as always, God had a plan. And that plan was going to come to fruition perfectly in concert with the unchangeable trajectory that had started in eternity past. So, sorry, not sorry, chief priests, elders, and high priests, but your efforts to arrest and kill Jesus, they will succeed. But your plans to wait until after the feast aren't going to succeed. God says so. So we shift gears again, starting in verse 6. We move from Jesus and His disciples and then the plotters and schemers to a whole other setting and group of people, starting in verse 6. But when Jesus was at Bethany 
in the house of Simon a leper. Okay, now, now it would seem that the scene shifts to another place here, and it surely does, but hold on just a second. Remember, we're talking about Wednesday of the last week of Jesus' life. Well, this didn't happen on Wednesday of the last week of Jesus' life. This happened the Saturday prior. Now, why does Matthew put it here? Well, Matthew's under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and I believe he is gauging the different reactions of Jesus' last week. So what we're about to read about here with Jesus at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper did not take place on Wednesday. It took place on the Saturday prior, the Saturday before Palm Sunday. And I'm telling you that because we need to see it in its proper context. And that context we get in John 12, verses 1 through 3. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment and made, made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, which we'll get to in a minute. The big deal here is six days before the Passover. Okay? Passover's on Friday. Six days before the Passover is when? Saturday. Okay? It's important to pay attention in the Bible to time references. It's important to pay attention to the whole picture painted by all four gospel writers. And we don't always do that here on Sunday morning, but it's important that you know that Matthew's not bouncing back and forth to events the same night. He's actually going back to Saturday. Okay? So John makes it clear that this event, which we see in John's gospel, was six days before the Passover, which would have been Saturday. And it was in the house of a man called Simon the leper. Uh Uh-oh, what? Why would there be a dinner at the home of a leper? Well, obviously he wasn't a leper anymore. Just referred to that since it had marked his life for a period of time. And seeing as how leprosy was incurable, what do we think happened to Simon the leper? It's pretty clear that Jesus had healed him. Okay, And that's why he's given a, a dinner to honor Jesus. He's hosting the dinner Jesus is at with Lazarus the dead man, or formerly dead man, and, and Lazarus' sisters Mary and Martha. Okay, so that's what's going on. They're in this house of this man named Simon. And again, Luke gives an account of a different meal where a different woman comes into a different Simon's house. The account in Luke is not the same. That's in Matthew and John, and that's not real important. But just so you know, when you read the Luke account, you're like, this is not that. It's something different. But this is happening the Saturday before Jesus' crucifixion. It's at the house of a man named Simon who obviously had been healed of his leprosy by Jesus. Mary's there, Martha's there, Lazarus is there, Jesus and his men, we assume, we know Jesus is there, we assume all of his men are there. So now back in Matthew, what we're seeing then in verse 6 is a flashback of sorts. And, and story writers, movie directors use them all the time, right? You know, you're like, and you, it's funny how different people use different things to show a flashback. They, maybe they go to black and white, you know, they go, remember this, or it shows the hazy things. I don't know. I don't know. There's no, there's no need for hazy things, okay? Uh, we're, but we are seeing a flashback of sorts. When we've seen Jesus announcing his coming crucifixion to his men, while at the same time scoundrels are plotting to kill Jesus. Well, Matthew goes back to four days earlier, remembering an event that fits nicely in this narrative. So go back with Matthew to the previous Saturday at the house of Simon the leper in Bethany just outside the city of Jerusalem and then look at verse 7. A woman came up to him, Jesus, with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment and she poured it on his head 
as he reclined at table. Now John, remember, identified this woman as Mary. Mary and Martha Mary. Lazarus' sister Mary. And here in Matthew, we see that she came up to Jesus at this dinner as he reclined at the table. That's how they would eat on those days. The tables were loaded to the floor and they would actually lay on their sides and eat. Okay, so he's reclined at table and she comes up to him and she has an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. John says it's nard, N-A-R-D, which is made from the sphincter plant, which is also just called nard. The big story is that this ointment and its flask made of alabaster were very, very expensive. Alabaster is a white stone used in statues and carvings, and here it's used as a flask. Alabaster was used because it was known to be best for helping perfumes keep their smell stronger for longer. It didn't leach the perfuminess out of the perfume. Alabaster didn't. And Matthew notes that the ointment was very expensive. Now John added that it was pure nard. Mark tells us in his account of this that it was worth about 300 denarii. And you're like, well, thanks a lot. What's that mean? Let me give you a blanket statement. Probably about a full year's wages. Okay, ladies... Hopefully he spent two months' salary on your engagement ring. I did not. Sorry, Amanda. She's not here. So, Two months is a lot of money, right? How about a full year? This lady's taking something which was a full year's worth of wages. And what does she do with it? This very expensive perfume. She takes this ointment walks right into the dinner as Jesus is reclined at the table and pours that very expensive ointment on his head, Matthew says. And John adds this, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment and made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So it was his head, it was his feet. You just see her pouring this expensive, very expensive ointment out upon the Lord on his head, on his feet. And it was common for people who would come into someone's home in those days to have an anointing. Let's just say it plainly, they smelled bad, okay? We, we do this every morning. They didn't do that. So it was common for people to put perfume on people when they came into their house. Well, Mary picks up on that and she takes that which is most precious to her, a year's worth of wages, and she just pours it all over Jesus on his head, on his feet. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, let's just sit here for a second. I'm afraid we're so familiar with this story that we don't really think about it. Picture the man, Jesus Christ, reclined at a table, and a lady walks in and opens this flask. Everybody knows what it is because they can smell it. And she starts pouring it on his head. And then she goes to his feet and she pours on his feet and she takes her hair and mops up the excess with it. What is she doing? She's worshiping. She's taking that which is most precious to her materially and she says, I'm going to pour it out on him. What an act. What a scene. What a sacrifice. What worship. What a service. And just think how those in attendance must have just been like, man, this is precious. This is a holy moment. This is incredible. 
but they weren't. Seems like they missed it too. Watch this. And when the disciples saw it, the disciples, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Now what? What just happened? These guys, were they worshipful? Were they thankful? No, it says that they were indignant when they saw it. That word indignant was used back in Matthew when James and John had their mommy ask for them to be seated on Jesus' right hand and left hand in His kingdom. It says the other ten were indignant at James and John. It means to be mad, to feel great displeasure at something. And these guys felt indignant. They felt anger and displeasure at what Mary had just done. Wasting, they say, this very expensive ointment. Because, they say, it could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. What? But watch this. Who do you think was leading this indignant parade? Let's go back to John 12 and read verses 4 through 7. But Judas Iscariot... One of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, John tells us, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now there's two things to note here. First is that Judas took the lead. But don't just dump on him because Matthew says it was the disciples. Now take a second to think about that. These disciples were following Judas's lead as late as the last week of Jesus' life. Wow. And we'll look at him in a minute. But we know that this isn't a good thing. The disciples say, echoing Judas probably, that this was wasteful what Mary had done. Because that ointment could have been sold and given to the poor. Well, that sounds awfully heroic, doesn't it? Well, we, we should take care of the poor. This is wasteful. You should have done something different, Mary. You should have went out and brought that money to us so we could handle it for you. And Mary's just like, I'm just worshiping my Lord. And Jesus has a different view than his men. Look at verses 10 and 11. But Jesus, aware of this, their indignation, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. (laughs) Talk about a stinging rebuke. Jesus is not happy with his men here. Now he still loves them, but he ain't happy with them. Once Jesus catches wind of what his guys are doing and saying after this beautiful act of worship by Mary, he takes them to task and to school right then and there. He asks them, why are you troubling her? Why are you troubling Mary, this woman? Why are you causing her issues, taking offense at what she's done for, Jesus says. And see this, she has done a beautiful thing to me. So how did Jesus feel about what Mary had done? He saw it as a beautiful thing. And oh, that he would see our worship as a beautiful thing. And since Jesus saw what she had done as beautiful, that's all the validation she needed. But what about the desire, whether it was true or fake, that the ointment should should have been sold and the money given to the poor? Well, Jesus says that the poor will always be with them, but that He would not be. 
Ooh, that's something, isn't it? Did Jesus care about poor people? Absolutely. He sure did. But now listen. For everything under the sun, there is a time and a season. And here, Jesus says it was right of her to take this time to focus on worshiping me instead of taking care of the poor. Not that one is right and the other is wrong. But just in this moment, what she did was beautiful and it was honored as such by Christ Himself. It is not wrong to worship Jesus anytime. Now that doesn't get you out of helping the poor. You should care about the poor and help the poor. But know your timing. Know your place. You might could say that by giving what was probably the most expensive thing she owned in an act of service and worship, that she showed where her heart truly was. Did not Jesus say earlier in the gospel, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also? And that's never wrong. It's always right to worship Jesus with your treasure and to make Jesus your treasure in place of your treasure. So don't trouble her for that. Oh, and timing is important here too, verse 12. In pouring this ointment on my body, Jesus says, she's done it to prepare me for burial. Now remember, this is Saturday before His crucifixion, so this is six days before He's crucified. Jesus sees some time-sensitive relevance to what Mary has done. He says that this outpouring of love and ointment serves to prepare Him for His burial. Now, whoa, there's a bomb dropped in the middle of a celebration dinner, right? Here, six days before He will be killed by crucifixion, He says that Mary's ointment gets Him ready for burial. He's prepared now. He's always been prepared. But now He is shown as ready. Seen as ready by other people. He's recognized as ready by everybody in the room. Her worship showed the rest of them what they need to be willing to do to be ready as well. Will they be willing to let go of what's most precious to them, even Christ Himself, as He marches to the cross? Because they're going to have to. If their faith is in an uncrucified Savior, their faith is misplaced. Same for us. And Mary shows them what giving everything up looks like in practice. And Jesus is getting them all ready for it once again by announcing His upcoming burial, which means that He's going to die, to be buried. So He continues to prepare them for that. And not only that, watch this. He's about to commemorate her for all eternity. Verse 13 is just... Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Man, whoo, ah. Truly, which is the word amen, truly, amen, Jesus says to them for emphasis, Whenever, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, and it will be, which is a proclamation as well, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And here we are today, March 28, 2021, and we remember her. It's funny how that works. Jesus says something and it actually happens. 
being told here today as we work our way through Matthew's Gospel. And until Jesus comes back, the world will continue to read this account and her worship and her memory lives on. Now it's also interesting to note her sacrifice in connection with the proclamation of the Gospel. When the Gospel is proclaimed, her story of worship will be told to call us all to give it all up in order to know what true worship looks like. Giving that which is worth the most in loving worship to Him who is infinitely greater than anything this world has to offer. I'll willingly, lovingly give up anything because He's worth more than anything and everything. How powerful and how awesome. And that is a picture of conversion. A change of our emotions, a change of our desires, a change of our joys and our pleasures and our treasures. Oil worth a year's worth of wages, nothing compared to the ultimate worth of just knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's true, genuine conversion there. It's a change of affections. And Jesus says, remember that when you proclaim the gospel, proclaim a change of affections, going from hating me to loving me, going from loving things to loving me, giving up everything so that you can have everything in eternity. One lady's act of worship immortalized by the very words of the Christ Himself. And it must have really affected those who saw and heard it. Can you imagine? Well, we don't have to wonder how it affected one guy. It affected Judas in a profound way. Maybe just not the way it should have. Verses 14 and 15. Then, one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. Uh Uh-oh, we know what they're doing, right? And he said, what would you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. Now I think it's pretty interesting, the timing of this. We saw in John's account of Mary's anointing Jesus that Judas was a thief and helped himself to the money and the purse he kept for everyone. So here, after not getting the money, the 300 denarii that would have come into the money bag if she had sold the ointment, Judas, it seems, has had enough. Having missed out on his cut of 300 denarii, he makes a beeline to whom? He went to the chief priests. What are they doing? They're plotting to kill Jesus way back in Matthew 12. Now again, this is before the account that we saw today on Wednesday. This is the Saturday before that. So his move precipitated their moves. So Judas sees an act of pure worship, is mad because he didn't get anything out of it. It just didn't move me, you know. And he says, forget this Jesus stuff. I'm going to turn him over to the chief priests. (laughs) The plotting chief priests. And he says to these chief priests, what will you give me? What will you give me? If I deliver him over to you. Jesus is going to deliver Jesus over to the chief priests. He's going to betray Jesus. And we know that because we've heard it over and over and over again. But again, don't miss the gravity of this. This man who has traveled around with Jesus for three plus years as one of his twelve disciples who was sent out to cast out demons, who was sent out to proclaim the gospel and to call the lost sheep of the house of Israel into the fold, runs to the people seeking to kill Jesus, asking what he can get. If he turns Jesus over to them. It's unbelievably sad. 
and infuriating and tragic to a point. And they paid him 30 pieces of silver, which is the price of a slave. Slaves cost 30 pieces of silver. Why this waste? He had asked about the ointment. Why this waste, Judas, would be a better question. But it happened, and Judas was bought completely. Last verse. And from that moment, he, Judas, sought an opportunity to betray him, Jesus. What a tragic sentence. What an epitaph to be written on somebody's tombstone. And Judas would end up killing himself, by the way. And from that moment, Judas sought, he looked for, he hoped for, he worked toward an opportunity to betray Jesus. And his plans will come to fruition. Judas will succeed. And that's both a tragedy and a triumph. It's both horrific and glorious. It is vile and it is providential. It will be both sin and salvation. Sin for Him and salvation for other people. And listen to me. God is not surprised. God is not up in heaven going, Oh no, not one of His own. This man was marked out from eternity past as the son of perdition who would spend eternity in hell because he was a sinner who never converted even in the presence of Jesus for three and a half years. And it was in the plan of God. God was not surprised, nor will He ever be. And as we move into Resurrection Sunday, as we move toward Good Friday and thinking about the cross, remember God is not surprised. God has a plan. God is in control. And God is even going to use the sin of horrific people to accomplish His will and to purchase salvation for His people. There's a lot to process from today, y'all. That really might have been better to be three sermons, but I think it's good to see the contrast and the comparison between all. So let's look to application from what I think is a terrible and wonderful narrative today. We're going to be looking at application through three W's. Worry, weasel, and waste. W-A-S-T-E, by the way. Not, a waste is a terrible thing to mind, by the way. It's, worry, weasel, waste. And I want you to ask yourself, as you sit here this morning, it is still morning, I checked, which of these is your response to Jesus today? we got three doors. Old Monty Hall standing in front of us saying, pick a door. One of them's right. One of them makes you a laughing stock. One of them is completely worthless. And one of them is without fathom the worth that is involved. First is worry. What does that mean? It could have very easily also been war, W-A-R. Maybe sitting here this morning, you're like the Jewish leaders who see Jesus as a problem to be worried about. You see Jesus as a hurdle to what you want to accomplish for your life. Maybe you've grown up hearing the stories and everybody around you believes these tales, but you know better than all this Jesus stuff. Everybody expects that you believe them too, 
but you just ain't feeling it. That means you've got a problem. And your problem is you've got to get rid of Jesus. You've got to get Him out of your life. Because you will never be at peace as long as there's a possibility that He is real and that all you've heard is true. You've got no choice. You have got to kill Jesus. Erase Him from your life. He's got to go. So as you worry about this and put yourself at war with the Son of God, you are literally plotting to kill Him. Now that might seem a bit dramatic. But that's our only choice if Jesus is real and really does demand our obedience. We either obey Him or we try to kill Him. Friedrich Nietzsche made this clear when he sought to explain how the enlightenment and learning and growth and change made the concept of God irrelevant. You may have heard part of this, but here's what Nietzsche said. God is dead. God remains dead and we have killed Him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives who will wipe this blood off us. What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods? Simply to appear worthy. End of quote. And Nietzsche was unregenerate. Nietzsche was lost. But Nietzsche was right. This really is it. And I'm pretty sure if you're here this morning and you've got to get Jesus out of your life and you want to ignore Him and put Him away, you fit squarely in with secular America this morning. Because this is where secular America, secular America is mostly today. We've got to kill Jesus. And by golly, if they ain't trying. And if you're here today and don't believe in Jesus and refuse to look to Him for your forgiveness and salvation, you have put yourself on the throne. You have become your own God, like Nietzsche said. And you've got to kill the God of the Bible. Good luck. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. And you know what? We've all been there at one point or another. We all have been the enemies of God. We all have plotted to kill Jesus, to get Him out of our lives. Even, it's, even if it's through ignoring Him, that's an effort to kill Him. Joke's on you though, and it's not a funny joke. Door number one reveals nothing. Nothing for all eternity. If you're in the camp that's trying to kill, forget, move past, don't deal with Jesus. Door number one is not a good door. Worry. That's all you've got left to do is to worry for all eternity. Just like the chief priests, the elders of the people, and the high priest. Oh, there's somebody else. Door two, a weasel. Maybe you don't hate God. You don't want to see Him gone. Maybe you just want Him to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. 
And that's what it seems happened with Judas. Jesus wasn't making His wildest dreams come true. The kingdom wasn't coming into fruition according to Judas's expectations. Death? How are you going to set up the kingdom and put me on a throne if you're dead? How are you going to look at this 300 denarii being poured out and me not get a piece of that? Judas could not wait to get his hands on that money. But Jesus didn't let that happen. So what did Judas do? He sold Jesus out. He weaseled away to get some cash apart from Jesus. And here's the deal. If you're only seeking Jesus to get the things and stuff and blessings that you want in the material world, your only choice is to betray Jesus and get your 30 pieces of silver and go on with your life. Because if all you you want from Jesus is health, wealth, and prosperity, you are serving yourself and not Him. And this is where most of religious America is today. We want the blessings we see other people get. And we go to Jesus to ask Him to be a good genie that makes all of our dreams come true. Name it and claim it. The prosperity gospel, which is really no gospel at all. And if this is your response to Jesus, you will be disappointed. And ultimately, you will sell Him out of your life and miss His true worth. Paul warned about these people in Philippians 3. My clicker's not working if you can go there. Philippians 3, 17-19. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the, cro- of the, of, of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. That's what weasels do. You just want Jesus to make all your dreams come true? Your end is destruction. Your God is your belly. Your glory is your shame. And your minds are set on earthly things. You get a lifetime supply of rice aroni. Congratulations. Worry, weasel. There's another door, though. Waste. W A S T E. And then there's Mary. Mary had it all figured out. She really did. This poor, impoverished, Hebrew Jewish woman in first century Palestine who had all of her life savings in a tiny flask. She had heard Jesus say that he was to be killed and buried. And she poured out her very best to worship him and to help prepare his body for that death and that burial. She gave that which was most costly to her. And those looking on, even the disciples, called it a waste. Oh, that our lives would be wasted in worship for Jesus Christ. Doing those things that others call foolish in order to love Him and to love others well. I reference Watchman Nee a lot. And he tells a story. His whole adult life was given to gospel ministry. 
And he was sickly and he, had, he dealt with a lot of illnesses and broken down. And he saw an old college professor of his. And he hobbled up to him and said, it's good to see you. And the professor looked at him and actually kind of winced. He said, what happened to you? And he's like, what do you mean? He's like, you, you look bad. Are, are you okay? What are you doing nowadays? And he's like, I'm a, I'm a preacher. And the guy literally said, what a waste. You were one of the most brilliant minds that I've ever seen in any of my classes. And you're wasting it on preaching? And watch me. He said, I consider that a great compliment. Oh, that people would look at our lives and say, why are you wasting your life on this Jesus stuff? Why are you giving all your stuff away? Why are you loving other people to your own hurt? You could do really good for yourself if you just focus on yourself. Mary said, no, no. I'm much more focused on Him and worshiping Him. And He is my joy. He is my treasure. He is my pleasure. And nothing brings me pleasure as much as Him. He is whom I treasure. Not this smell good stuff. And door number three opens. And you get Christ for all eternity. Why? Because your steadfast love is better than life. The psalmist says, my lips will praise you. Mm. Paul also says this in Philippians 3. This is the antithesis of the guys that he mentioned before. Philippians 3 verses 7 through 11. May this be our gospel testimony in the world today. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You know how you gain the resurrection from the dead? By placing your faith in the finished work of a crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended Savior. His name is Jesus. Not your works. Not your efforts. Not your desires to be pleased by the things of the world. Not by storing up treasures here. Not by trying to kill God. Not by trying to use God to make your life better. But by valuing Him above all things. And recognizing that I am a sinner. And I need salvation. And that salvation can only come through the finished work of Christ. That I may possibly, I would say, totally, completely, yes, you will attain the resurrection from the dead when you put your faith in Him and worship Him with your life. Let's pray.
Father, we have no hope in life or in death apart from you. But in you, Lord, in the person of Christ, we have not just everything we need, but we have everything that we want. God, may we not be those who seek to squeeze you out of our lives, to kill you. May we not be those who try to use you for our own benefit. But may we be those who worship you. In what some would call a wasteful way. Pouring it all out. So that others may see and smell and hear and know that you are worth much more than anything that the world has to offer. May that be our testimony. And may you get glory in it and may people be drawn to you as they see our worship. Prepare our hearts, God, to remember the crucifixion, to celebrate the resurrection in this coming week. And today, God, may we worship you well in the power of your Spirit. And again, God, I pray if there's anybody here that does not know you, Holy Spirit, bring life. Bring conviction of sins and show them Jesus. We trust you to do that and trust that the Word has done that this morning. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. If you want to hang out and talk, it's a little wet out there, but I don't think it's raining. We'll love you better out there. I'm going to slip out. I'm trying to stay separate from folks.